Good morning, everyone. It is an honor to be here on this day. I bring you greetings from Louisville Presbyterian Theological Seminary in Kentucky, where I have been pleased to serve as president for the last 20 months or so. I began my stint in the fall of 2018 and have found it to be a glorious experience. I am very pleased to have received the invitation from Kirk in the Hills, from Reverend Nate, as I hear you call him, Pastor Nate, <laughs> Reverend Angela, and to all of you for inviting me to come and share a few reflections about the living God. I would also like to acknowledge here with me this morning our Vice President for Institutional Advancement at the seminary, Ann Monell. So if you have money in your pockets that are loose, see Ann. We are really honored to be here, and she is sitting with one of our alum, Bob Agnew and Diane, and they also serve on our President's Roundtable. So it's good to see you as well, and many of you probably already know Bob and Diane. To all of you, it is good to be here. Ann and I have been in Michigan since Wednesday. We have been traversing the state meeting with alum and donors and friends of the seminary, speaking and talking. And so we come to you today a little exhausted, <laughs> greatly exuberant all at once. So it really is good to be here. Looking forward to returning to warmer climes. <laughs> Thirteen years ago, my beloved, Jessica, and I moved to Washington, D.C. At that time, I had been called to serve as the dean of Howard University's School of Divinity. It was 2007. 2008 was on the horizon. The quadrennial campaign for president of the United States was in full swing. Senators Hillary Rodham Clinton and Barack Obama were in a close race for the Democratic nomination. And the late Senator John McCain led a crowded Republican field. You may remember this past 12 months, everyone was talking about why are there so many Democratic candidates? Well, at that time, everyone was asking why are there so many Republicans? We tend to forget how quickly these things change. Not only was there a great contest at the national level, but politics were contested at the local level. The District of Columbia is geographically divided into quadrants. 
administratively divided into council wards and politically divided along demographic fault lines. It is a city where urban development and investment displaces people and where power and privilege, inequality and distress, systemic neglect and the scandal of federal taxation without representation are the order of the day. Jessica and I watched firsthand the changes taking place in our local Washington, D.C. neighborhood. The uprooting of longtime residents and renters, steadfast but politically disregarded citizens. Frequently, these were the black elderly. And the arrival of earnest young people, mostly white, as the new and desired occupants of the city. Every open house we attended proudly heralded the city's quote-unquote renaissance of economic vitality and population adjustment. The history of DC's urban makeover dates back to the late 1990s when an infusion of development dollars poured into the city. Traditional family dwellings were converted to luxury apartments and condo units. Abandoned houses were renovated or torn down. Foreclosed properties were rehabbed and sold. New housing starts exploded. Entire city blocks gave way to micro-enterprise. The fruits of revitalization were everywhere, almost. Banks systematically excluded black Washingtonians from the preferred lending practices and housing opportunities made available to many whites. Beset by an absence of regulatory protections, rising property taxes, and mortgage foreclosures, DC's black population has been in steady decline in the midst of urban plenty. Not long ago, not long ago at all, we the people prematurely celebrated the maturity of our American democracy. The election of a two-term black president and the popularity of the then first family were proof positive to we ourselves that as a nation we had overcome. Yet event after event, from Charleston, South Carolina to Charlottesville, Virginia, and Ferguson, Missouri to Orlando, Florida, and countless shootings and deaths in between serve as deadly reminders of what our nation has always known and yet has wanted so very much to forget. In communities and municipalities, from sea to shining sea, all manner of social division and discontent is deeply and distressingly entrenched. In Washington, D.C., the root causes of black anger were not hard to identify during our time there. 
Now bear in mind, Jessica and I were professionals of long standing and we were making significant incomes or so we thought, but we could not afford to buy a house in Washington, D.C., so we were renting. And what we quickly learned was that if we could not buy a house, imagine what it was like for those who had been living there much longer and could not do as much as we. What were their experiences? Unattainable home ownership, inequitable and unjust education, over-policing practices and prosecutorial decisions, disproportionate incarceration, and collateral damage to families, library, food, and health care deserts, and structural unemployment permanently assigned to select neighborhoods, precincts, and wards. This was what we experienced. The poles and prerogatives of power in the District of Columbia are brazen and subtle, conscious and unconscious, structural and interpersonal. Congress still has veto power over the D.C. city budget. The dynamics of oppression operate with deadly intent. Economic and social apartheid drives the daily reality. Now, I do not know how much of this sounds familiar to you. I do not know Bloomfield Hills, and I certainly do not know well Metro Detroit. But I can say, in the short time since I have moved to Louisville, Kentucky, I have learned there about the infamous and lucrative Louisville slave pens that once lined the Ohio River, the city's 1914 segregation ordinance, the neighborhood restrictive covenants that came thereafter, and 21st century redlining and zoning that continues still. Xenophobia, the unfounded fear of the stranger, and the evidence of our manifold estrangements, one from the other, seems to have taken up permanent residence in the United States everywhere, from sea to shining sea. In fact, it has taken up residence not only on the borderlands, but in our own backyards. God has a dream for us, and this is the good news, a world and a way of life that embraces all people from every background, condition, and circumstance, if we are only courageous enough to accept it. God calls us as the church to proclaim the good news that leads to the transformation of our day and time. God calls us to bear witness to a new future for humanity, born of our Christian faith. All too often, our lack of compassion as believers confounds the world's marginalized and disinherited, our inability to speak truth about the conditions of suffering 
humanity confuses God's people. Our apathy in their time of greatest need diminishes and demeans them. We do violence to our siblings. We prefer they did not inconvenience us. We seek to keep them at an invisible distance, even in our charitable well-doing. This is how Martin Luther King Jr. put it, and I quote, any religion that professes to be concerned with the souls of men and women and is not concerned with the, slim, the slums that condemn them, the economic conditions that strangle them, and the social conditions that cripple them is a dry-as-dust religion. Today is open season on many people in our nation and world. Rainbow humanity is being lost to the relentless spiral of violence and death. Brown and black and white, children, women and men, lesbian, gay and straight, fluid, transgender and queer. The disabled, the assaulted, the harassed, the indigenous, the dreamer and asylum seeker, the Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, Jew, and seek immigrants at our borders, the huddled masses yearning to breathe free. All are suffering the indignity of social pathologies not of their making. Ecclesiastes tells us that change is inevitable, multicultural, multilingual, gender diverse, interreligious, beautifully human and exquisitely complex. We, the people of the United States, are in the throes of birth pangs. How will we, as people of faith, respond? Will we sacrifice the beloved community on the altar of comfort and conformity? The most entrenched evils of our day, all forms of indifference and indecency and prejudice and deceit and bigotry all await our deepest response. Are we ready to establish by grace and through faith a new and better world, a more just and inclusive and equitable world? Do we care enough for each other, for ourselves, for creation, for God? Do we care enough to act? Through the years, there have always been those who in the time of crisis found ways to be resourceful, to mobilize, to advocate, to create intellectual, moral, and social networks based on their belief in the infinite worth of every human being everywhere. This is what I believe that all of life is interconnected. I believe that freedom is a constant struggle. I believe that justice is indivisible. I believe that we are the children of God and more. I believe that God
Emmanuel is with us here and now. I believe, I believe that we are called to bear witness, you and I, to the power of love, to resist the dynamics of human violation and gender violence, white supremacy and homophobic patriarchy, state power and suppressed wages, and the imperialist policies of our age. I believe that God calls us to join our knowledge with a surpassing faith to overcome our own worst fears of one another, to advance the common cause, to advocate for the suffering and dispossessed, to choose goodness, to wage peace, to build a common humanity under a friendly sky, to beat swords into plowshares, to turn spears into pruning hooks, to make the rough places plain, to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God, to engage in the kind of transcendent hope and prophetic advocacy that saves people's lives and helps to make us whole. Dreaming dreams and seeing visions, the fervent prayers of the people of God everywhere is for a better country and a better world. God's dream for the church is that we confess our contradictions. Be the good news for the poor. Don't just tell them about it. Overcome the great divisions of our day with our hearts and deeds and lives, that we transform ugliness and greed, poverty and squalor, alienation and disharmony, violence and hate into beauty and holiness, fulfillment and security, equality and tranquility, love and life. Kirk in the Hills, it is a joy to be here with you today. And I must tell you, that as we have moved across the state, talking to young people and old, again and again, I am reminded that we are all in a world of pain. People are living with holes in their lives. Humanity yearns for so much more. And mostly it seems we don't know how. We have lost our way. And this is God's dream for us. Galatians 3:28 says it plainly. There is no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, for all of us are one. We, all of us, belong to one another. We are of one blood all. We are different and we are so very much alike. We are imperfect and we are beloved. We are one community under God and God believes in us. This is my hope for you that we will love 
one another.